it's, it's interesting, if you pay attention to the conversations that biblical counselors have had over the last couple of decades and that they've been uh, having not merely with one another but also with those outside the biblical counseling movement, there's been um, some criticism that biblical counselors ignore suffering in favor of paying attention only to sin. I actually think that is a little unfair. Um, I think it's, it's better to characterize the conversations that biblical counselors have had about this is how do we engage sin and suffering? What's the, what's the best way to do it? Uh, it is true that Dr. Adams and his um, foundational works, he did talk about the importance of sin more than he talked about the importance of suffering, but that was because of a very specific historical context that he was initiating a movement that had disregarded any understanding of sin in the counseling room. It was the one thing you couldn't talk about. And so for very culturally constrained reasons, he spent a lot of time talking about sin, but that doesn't mean that he or the movement have have ignored suffering. I think... um, what we need to talk about is not whether we're going to talk about sin or suffering, but how we're going to talk about both. In fact, I'd want to make the argument that by the time you're doing counseling with someone, by the time someone has sought out help, they are both a sinner and a sufferer. That's not to say um, that everybody who needs counseling is both of those. Uh, That's not to say that everybody we're chasing after and trying to get to listen to us is both of those. But it is to say that by the time somebody comes to you and says, I have a problem in my life, uh, there is going to be both sin and suffering on the table, and we need to figure out how to deal with both of them. I think that there are actually four different contexts for sin and suffering in the counseling room. The first context is counselees who sin apart from a context of suffering. So... These are the people who are, in spite of every advantage and no discomfort, they just go off and sin. Second is counselees who suffer as a result of their sin. Counselees who suffer as a result of their sin. So these are the people, maybe they're in the first category, but either way they went and they sinned, and now their sin is biting back hard, and it is bringing pain and suffering into their life. A third context is counselees who suffer apart from the context of sin. So this is the person who is going through real pain and they are at no fault. Uh, This is someone who's been diagnosed with cancer or someone who's been victimized or something like that. Um, Counselees who suffer apart from the context of their sin. And then fourthly, counselees who sin as a result of their suffering. So this could be somebody like in number three who didn't do anything to deserve the sin that they experienced, but now they respond to the suffering, uh, that suffering that they experienced from somebody else, they respond to it in a sinful way. And we have to help them with that. Those seem to me to be the four contexts for sin and suffering and counseling. Counselees who sin apart from the context of suffering. Counselees who suffer as a result of their sin. Counselees who suffer apart from the context of their sin. And then counselees who sin as a result of their suffering. The extremes uh, in these, if we're going to put these four categories on a continuum, the extremes are fairly easy 
to deal with. High-handed sinners are in need of a stern rebuke. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 tells us that we're to admonish the unruly. So there you go. Problem solved. Uh, People who are sinful need to be rebuked. Uh, That is a huge category of counselees that secular counseling has no category for. Talk about that later today. The other extreme, innocent sufferers, they haven't done anything to incur the suffering. They're just experiencing suffering at the hands of another sinner or they're experiencing suffering in a fallen world. Those sorts of innocent sufferers need encouragement and help. This is what 1 Thessalonians 5.14 also says, that we are to encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak. So in addition to admonishing the unruly, we encourage the faint-hearted, we help the weak. Those are the easy ones. High-handed sinners, you get a rebuke. Uh, Weak sufferers, you get encouragement and help. But what about the more complicated situations? in the middle of that continuum. These would be the second and fourth categories that I mentioned. What about counselees who suffer as a result of their sin? What about counselees who sin as a result of their suffering? So that sin and suffering in the counseling room is all tangled up together. Well, that's what I want to talk about in our time together in this session, is how we handle those complex situations where the two are bound up together. I I think that it's important that we're talking about this in a conference on the sufficiency of Scripture, uh, because the Bible gives us answers on this. We're We're not left confused about what we should do when we are talking with such people. The The Bible gives us some instruction, and I want to talk about that. So first... Let me talk about counselees who are experiencing suffering as a result of their sin. So this would be an unfaithful husband. He's committed adultery. His wife has found out. And he's brokenhearted that his wife is brokenhearted. And in the context of counseling, he has to end the relationship with the woman with whom he's committing adultery. And he is brokenhearted about that. He goes through real grief at the loss of this adulterous relationship. That's that's exactly what I'm talking about. This is someone who is suffering. It's real suffering. It's legitimate suffering. He's He's in authentic pain. But he and his sin is what created the context for the suffering. Does that make sense? Another example would be uh, something I'm dealing with right now. We just, uh, just this week is the uh, last week of the semester for classes at Boyce College. Next week is the last week of classes at Southern Seminary. And this is the time of the year where students that you have never seen before want an audience with you because they are in trouble. Uh, They thought they could finish the paper quicker than they're going to be able to finish it. Uh, They thought they didn't need to study as long as it turns out they need to study, and they just took the final, and 
they're revising their view of purgatory. <laughs> and so we think of students who are failing out of school because of irresponsible living in the preceding few months. They're, they're really sad. Listen, I, I just talked with a student uh, just two days ago who's crying in my office because he's in a real mess. He's really suffering. He's really in pain, but what led to that suffering is his own sin. So, so individuals like this and many other examples that we could give are clearly guilty of sin, but that does not mean that they're not also experiencing spiritual pain. And wise ministry needs to consider that. Wise ministry needs to consider the intermingling of sin and suffering. I also want to talk about counselees sinning in response to their suffering. So think back with me to that couple that I mentioned. I'm thinking of a, of a real couple that I know. He committed adultery and the wife finds out. And now she is broken hearted. This particular couple that I'm thinking of, this was a good and a faithful wife. She had been a steadfast and devoted uh, wife to the man, uh, mother to their kids. Um, and through no fault of her own, he began to nurture immorality in his heart. He uh, caught uh, the attention of uh, somebody that they both knew, and he began an adulterous relationship with her, and now the wife finds out about it, and she's brokenhearted. She didn't do anything to deserve that, but she is suffering, and in the midst of that suffering, this couple that I'm thinking of this wife refused to forgive her husband. This wife beat him up with a skillet, a hot skillet. She was using the skillet when he walked into the kitchen and tried to, tried to do what we'd been talking about in counseling. I encouraged him to use words and encouraging words and, and to invest in her in ways that were not physical. So if... If you're like the little prairie dog who all of a sudden you appear on the radar when you're interested in a sexual encounter, that dog's not going to hunt. So you, we need you to be perked up way, way, way before you're interested in sex. And so he was doing that. He was being a good counselee. He came in and he, without touching his wife, without initiating any kind of sexual relationship, he just said that he really appreciated her making dinner. Well, she let him have it with the skillet. He had to, when, I, when, I came, when they met with me the next time, he had stitches uh, on his forehead and burns on his face where she had gone in on him. Um, this is a woman who is experiencing legitimate suffering. I mean, it's... Uh, some of the most sad people I know in my life are people who have been victims of adultery. But we'd also have to say she's sinned in response to that legitimate suffering, and she, we need to deal with both of those. Another example would be a widower that I'm aware of, was in the second church that I pastored in ministry, and uh, his wife died. Uh, got cancer. They were in their 40s. Got cancer. He had, they had uh, three or four kids. His wife gets cancer. 
A month later, she's dead. And he was devastated. Completely devastated. House falls apart. He can't go to work. Uh, he's not present with his kids. And in fact, the, his employer was another member of our church. And started coming to me two months after the death and said, you know, I told him uh, when his wife first died, take all the time you need. We want to be patient. But just help me now. We're two months in. His job is like a crucial job in our company. It's not getting done. What, what do I do? Uh, and so we started talking with him and trying to encourage him to uh, get out of bed and be more fruitful, be plugged in with his kids. And finally, after nine months of that, uh, after nine months of not, uh, not going to work, his boss had to fire him. Now, this man is a legitimate sufferer, is he not? But he also failed to respond to that suffering in faith, hope, and love, and it created a pattern of irresponsibility, and now he had a situation where he's, he sinned in response to his suffering. So you see, these are complicated situations. And most counseling in situations like that will require wisdom uh, as we negotiate the intersection of sin and suffering. But the methodological question that I just want to address in our time together today is, which should you engage first? In each of those examples that I gave that fall underneath those two categories, what's the, what is the best thing to do as far as which issue we engage first? I want to say that the general rule when it comes to engaging sinfulness and suffering in counseling is that we ought to engage suffering first and then sin. I think that should, as biblical counselors, that should be our general mode of operation when we intersect with counselors who have suffering and sin mingling together, our general mode of operation ought to be to engage suffering first and sin next. And let me give you a few examples. Why There are many reasons why. Maybe I'll give you three. First of all, I think this is Christ-like. It's Christ-like to engage suffering first. Look at Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. says in verse 18, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. The Puritan Author Richard Sibbs uh, wrote a book called The Bruised Reed. Wonderful book about the tender compassion of Jesus to hurting and troubled people. And this is obviously one of the passages that serves as his thesis. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. Jesus Christ did not have any fear of rebuking sinners. Uh, in fact, he did, it a, he did it in ways that would make even some of the boldest of us shiver. Brood of vipers. 
mean, that was Jesus, you know. We like Jesus and the children and the pictures in the children's book and ring around the rosy and all that kind of thing. But Jesus also screaming at Pharisees, you know, turning over tables and whatnot. Those often don't make it in the children's storybooks, but they're in the Bible. So Jesus was not afraid to rebuke people. But the same Jesus who turned over the tables of the money changers is also the Christ of whom it is true that he would never break a bruised reed. He would not consider quenching a smoldering wick. Jesus is the kind of person who is our Savior, who's not afraid to rebuke sin, but he's on the lookout for people who are weak. He's he's on the lookout for people who are flagging. And and you just watch, you read in the New Testament, and you see who Jesus comes after with full and forceful rebuke. And they're not the people who are struggling with suffering. When he rebukes people who are struggling with with suffering, um, he's always gentle. Think of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. Think of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. I mean, these are sinful women. But he's not going to quench a smoldering wick. He says, go go and sin no more. But it's after he has demonstrated care to them. So it's Christ-like to deal with suffering before you deal with sin. Don't you want to be like Jesus? I mean, Jesus is sometimes more complex than, than we want to give him credit for being. Sometimes we think... I'm going to water down faithfulness if I let sin go. I'm not going to be secular. I'm going to be the guy who sees sin. I'm going to let him have it. Well, anywhere you're not like Jesus, you need to change. Anywhere you're not like Jesus, you need to change, even when it comes to how you address sin. Are you alert, as was our Christ, to suffering people who need a rebuke, but we are not ever going to break a bruised reed. Another reason to engage suffering first is that it's loving. It's loving. In the great love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, it says many things about what love is. But in verse 7, it says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You know, if that were the only verse in 1 Corinthians 13, we would know more about love than the world does. But it's just one verse, just one one little verse. I think each of those four clauses relate to this issue of dealing with suffering first, but we won't take all four of them. Let me pick one. Um, love believes all things. It's an act of love and compassion to believe the best of those that we counsel. It's an act of love to look at a person, who even who is sinning, and believe that there is circumstances that created a context for their sin. The circumstances, 
aren't going to mean we don't rebuke people. Again, this isn't about do we deal with sin or suffering. It's how we deal with both. It's what's the wisest way to deal with both. And it's tender and loving and compassionate to believe the best about my friend who got fired from his job. Was he irresponsible? Of course he was irresponsible. But the context of his irresponsibility was the loss of a dear and precious wife. And I love him well when I see that, when I don't reduce him down to just some irresponsible yuts. Why don't you go to work? Listen, he's different than people I'm related to. Right? People in my family who just don't go to work, they just, you know, they just call you up and ask you for money. That's not my friend that I'm at, at my church that I'm talking with you about. It's loving to him to see and believe this context that surrounds what has happened to him. And if I, if I just go after him for his irresponsibility, I don't, I'm not seeing that thing. I'm not even dealing with the situation. I'm not counseling him. I'm counseling a situation that doesn't exist. And so it's loving and gentle to do that. Here's here's another reason. It's strategic to do this. Look at uh, Proverbs 25, verse 11. Proverbs 25, verse 11. It says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. We are encouraged here and in Ephesians chapter 4 and several other places in the Bible to have words that fit the occasion. Words that that strategically occur at the right time. And this word picture here is wonderful. Apples of gold in a setting of silver. That's a word fitly spoken. So the word is the apples of gold. And the fitness of the occasion is the setting of silver. Wise and strategic words put both together. All right? Uh, if, If we take away the fitness of the occasion, we're just lobbing golden apples at people. We don't want to do that. We want to serve them up in a setting of silver, which means not just knowing what to say, but when to say it. When is it apt to say this word? My my wife sinned against me one morning. That would be hard for you to imagine if you knew my wife. Uh, because my wife is really the most gracious and kind woman I've ever met. I'm not just saying that because uh, she's my wife and this is being recorded. I'm, <laughs> I'm saying it because it's true. I mean, she is just the kindest, most gentle woman I know. And one morning I was leaving to go to work and she said something to me that was sinful. And I was running late and I was like, oh, that's annoying that she said that. But I'm running late and I'm going to get in the car, and we'll just talk about it later. So I got in the car, went to work, busy day. Usually, in fact, we touch base through the day a couple of times, and we didn't have a chance to do that this particular day. I was teaching a lot of classes or something, and I, uh, I got in the car, and I was on the way home, and we just have a rule of thumb. We try to settle accounts quickly in our house, and so I just was praying on the way, Lord, give me words as I get home to just be able to sit down and talk with Lauren and, and help her to... Um, uh, 
uh, help her to see what she said wasn't right and pull in the garage and open up the door to come into the kitchen and uh, Lauren comes around the corner and she starts crying. And uh, she'd been on the phone with her mother. Uh, my father-in-law, uh, her dad, has Parkinson's disease. He's had it for uh, 25 years now. He's quite ill, quite debilitated. This was just a few years ago. And uh, she'd gotten some bad news from her mom about her dad's condition worsening. And uh, she'd, she'd just gotten off the phone, and she was deeply sad about this news she'd received about her dad. Now, what if I said, honey, I'm sorry about that, but listen, we've got to talk about what you said this morning. I mean, would that be a word fitly spoken? No. I mean, we need to talk about it, um, but we don't need to talk about it right then. There are all kinds of good things that need to be said that don't need to be said right now. In John chapter 16, Jesus said, I have many things that I need to say to you, but you can't bear them now. Jesus did that. And so it is, there is strategy in this. And part of the strategy isn't just knowing what to say and when to say it, but you earn credibility if you know when to say something. So like later on, like the next day, when I brought up what Lauren said that was sinful, she said, you're right, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. Because in our marriage, we've, we've each earned a reputation that... Uh, we, can, we can receive those rebukes with trust. Your counselees will trust you to rebuke them in their sin more after they've seen that you can be sensitive to them in their suffering. If you are a person who's walked with them in their pain, who's held their hand while they cried, who has given them encouragement in their weakness... Well, they're just more ready to listen to you when you say, you know, what you did wasn't good. So this is a strategic thing to do. So the general rule when suffering and sin is mingled together in counseling, as it almost always is, the general rule is we deal with suffering first. But there are some exceptions to that general rule. The exceptions would be if... A counselee is not yet suffering in his sin. He's, he's doing something that's going to bring suffering later, but it hasn't yet. Then you need to bring conviction of sin. So this would be, uh, this would be the adulterous man. He's going to suffer because of this. I mean, it's a promise in Proverbs 5 and Proverbs 7. He's going to do this, and then one day an arrow is going to pierce his liver. It's just the word of God. So we, we know it's coming, but he's like, nope, I'm not doing it. I love her. We're going to be together. Uh, some people, amazingly, astonishingly, they want to keep both things going. I want my wife, and I want this other woman. Well, we're not moving alongside such a person to comfort them. We are trying to bring correction. We are trying to administer a rebuke so that brokenness will happen, and then we minister in the brokenness. That's one exception. Another exception is if, uh, if a counselee is in danger of harming himself or others. We might not have all the time in the world to uh, move alongside them and comfort them. We think of somebody who's maybe suicidal or who has an eating disorder. Uh, we just need to engage this issue. 
uh, a counselee who's engaging in illegal activity. There might be an exception there. So there, there are some exceptions to the general rule, but for the most part, we're engaging suffering first. Now, another issue to address in this is, well, how much time should we spend engaging in suffering before we get to sin? So, okay, we're going we're gonna to deal with suffering before we deal with sin, but how much time on suffering? Well, that's a case-by-case situation. Um, this, um, this couple that I've repeatedly made reference to, I'll give you a little bit of the story here. He, uh, he was committing adultery with his wife's good friend. Uh, they were, uh, it was the couple that was meeting with me for counseling was good friends with another couple as they spent time together. Uh, the husband that was in my office that day began an adulterous relationship with the wife that was his wife's best friend. So his best friend, he's, he's, he's committing adultery with his best friend's wife who was his wife's best friend. Does that make any sense at all? Okay, good. Couple A, couple B, I don't you. There was adultery happening in the relationship, and everybody was best friends. At least that's what they said. And his wife found out, and she was devastated, as you're supposed to be when this happens. And as they sat in my office that day, um, the adulterous relationship was yet ongoing. So nobody had broken anything off. And uh, I said to him, you have to end this relationship. And he said, I can't do it. And and this wasn't the I can't do it of some guys I know that are like, forget you, preacher. I'm going to do what I want. You're not the boss of me. You can take that Bible and do whatever you want with it. But I'm not doing that. And then they leave. It wasn't that. This was, I can't do it. I don't have the resources to do what you're asking me to do. And here's what he said. His wife is sitting on the sofa in my office next to him. And he said, I love my wife. And I don't want to be without her. But I love this other woman. And I don't want to be without her. And I can't do it. And his wife's crying. I mean, can you imagine? You're sitting, your husband is saying, I love you and I love this woman I'm committing adultery with who's your best friend or who you thought was your best friend. And I I have to have both. So she's crying. Now, here's the question. Is that guy a jerk? (laughs) Yes, he's a jerk. People are nervous because I'm the suffering guy now. So they're like, oh, maybe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. He is a jerk. And we could probably work harder to find a biblical label for him. But jerk will do for our purposes right now. So yes, he is a jerk. But here's the other question. Don't you know what that feels like? I'm not talking about maybe you've, I'm not talking about whether you've committed adultery or not. I'm just saying, be honest now. Don't you know what it is to really want something that God hates? Don't you know what that's like? 
don't you know what it is to want something that hurts other people? I do. You do too. So here's the deal. I've got some compassion for this guy. As, as, he's, he's saying in tears things that are making his wife cry. I've got a little bit of compassion for him. And so case by case basis, we deal with suffering first and then we deal with sin. But how much time on suffering? Well, here's what I did. I said to him, I know this is hard. I know it. And by God's grace, I've never committed adultery before. But I know what it is to love things God hates and to hate things God loves. But you have to pick up your cell phone right now and you have to call her and you have to break up with her. So he got like eight seconds of suffering before sin. But it's eight seconds. Uh, it's, he, he, didn't, he didn't need eight days. He certainly didn't, didn't need eight months. By the way, I've shared this story in other contexts, and I get rebuked for this. That's not biblical counseling. That's another story for another day. Um, there was a little bit of compassion for him, because I get it. But the urgent matter right now is you have to break this off. You can't keep doing this. So we're going to spend a little bit of time on suffering with that guy. But we're going to spend a lot more time on suffering with his wife, aren't we? Um, When she is finding it nearly impossible to forgive him for this betrayal, ongoing betrayal, numerous acts of adultery, in her house while she was upstairs asleep. We have got room for, um, this is hard for her to do, because she got handed a situation that she's trying to sort through. She didn't, she didn't sin with a high hand in her failure to forgive. Now, is it, a fail, is it a sin to fail to forgive? Yes, it is. So she's got a rebuke coming. And she got a big rebuke coming when she physically abused her husband. That's awful. Listen, people sometimes chuckle when I tell that story. Nobody would chuckle if I said that he did that to her. What she did was awful. And she she got a big rebuke. And that, that, by the way, turned out to be the real turning point in their marriage. Because she finally realized... I. My husband took his turn to destroy our marriage, and now I'm taking my turn to destroy our marriage. But we're going to spend more time on the suffering with people who got, who got their sinful response handed to them by situations over which they had no control. But it's, it's going to be a case-by-case basis. We have to pray for wisdom, and we need the Lord to help us, and we need people around us to help us and say, hey, here's what I'm dealing with. Could you help me? Here's the last thing I want to say. If we deal with suffering before sin, and if the amount of time we spend on suffering before sin varies case by case, how how should we turn the corner? What should we do to transition from engaging the suffering element to engaging the sin element? And here's the three words that I remember to help me do this. It's listen, share, teach. Listen, share, teach. First of all, as I'm trying to figure out how to do this, I want to listen to you. 
the Bible says in James 1.19, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak. Proverbs 18, of course, says that the one who answers a matter before he hears it is folly and shame. So the Bible is clear that listening is the first thing we do. Listen, listening is the first counseling tactic that we engage. Otherwise, we're going to wind up solving a problem they don't have. So we need to listen. And listening is a way to minister to suffering people. I'll bet, you, I'll bet you've experienced this. Have you ever counseled somebody? You know, victims of abuse, uh, I found this to be particularly the case. Um, I, had, I had one lady who was uh, abused by her husband in a, in a sexual and in a physically abusive way for years. She'd, um, she'd reached out to people in her church for help, and they didn't want to get into it. They blew her off. And I sat with this woman in my office one day, and uh, she talked for about two hours. I had a young lady, uh, a student uh, at the school, observing the counseling with me. And um, when this woman finished, um, I said, I'm so sorry to hear what you just said to me. And she started sobbing. And she walked over across the office and she gave me a hug. And she got down on her knees and she said, nobody has ever listened to me before. Nobody's ever listened to me tell this story. Some people listen to the high points, but nobody wanted to get involved. And listen, I had that woman eating out of the palm of my hand before I ever said a word of counsel because I just listened to her. And so when people are suffering and you listen to them, they will trust you because they will believe you're for me. You're not, you're not trying to slap on pious, easy solutions. You want to hear me out. So listening is the first thing. And then share. Share. There's a couple things you can share. You can share your own story. It's one thing you can share in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. It's one of the most important passages in the Bible about suffering. It says, when you suffer, it happened for a very specific and obviously in the Bible revealed reason. Every suffering you experience is so that you will receive the comfort of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus Christ wants to use you to overflow in comfort to others that you receive from him. That's why you suffer. You suffer. God walks you through the deep waters of suffering so that you can minister to others who have to walk through that suffering as well. And so this is a passage that teaches that God, one of the ways God redeems our stories of pain is by forging us into the kind of people who know how to walk alongside other people who are in pain. Charles Spurgeon said that God only 
creates effective ministers in the furnace of suffering. So you can share your story. You can, uh, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to have gone through the same kind of pain or have the same kind of story uh, that, uh, that your counselee does in order to, to, to share a story of pain. You can say, you know what, um, maybe you have been in the same kind of situation, but whether you have or whether you haven't, you can say, you know what, I've been in a situation like that before and here's how I felt. And again, people will sense that you get it. You'll be fulfilling 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So you could share your own story. Or you could share of the truths of Scripture. I mentioned uh, this lady that I'm calling Sarah back in the first session. And um, I, I've had, I've had my, my fair share of suffering in my life, like each one of you, but I didn't sense that it was appropriate for me to talk about my story, at least initially, with Sarah. And so what I did is I went to Psalm 55, part of which we read in the first session this morning. And I was able to help her see that David gave words to the same kind of pain that she was experiencing. It's interesting when you read commentaries about Psalm 55, everybody and their brother is trying to figure out what context Psalm 55 was written in. Because a lot of times David does us a favor and he gives us a little prescript and tells us what was going on that he does it in Psalm 55. So everybody's trying to figure out, well, what's going on in Psalm 55? And a lot of people say, what's the whole deal with Absalom? I'm going, I don't care. God in his providence saw fit not to tell us. And I think there's wisdom in that. Go figure. I think we're invited by not being told what the specific pain is. I think we're invited to take Psalm 55 and map it onto whatever situation we're struggling with. And that's exactly what Sarah did. And and we were able to say, God in his word, David in his pain, knows exactly what it feels like to be betrayed by someone close. He knows exactly what it feels like to experience the desperation of that pain and have the only thing he wants to do is to fly out of it. And so... Sarah goes, yeah, God gets it. David gets it. There's room in the Bible for this kind of pain. So listen, share, either your stories or the truths of Scripture, but then teach. Listen, share, and teach. Teach the truths of God's message and the call to repentance. So as you share your story, you can say, and here's what God taught me through it. As you share uh, the truths of Scripture, the Bible always identifies with our pain. It always understands the struggle, but it always anchors that struggle in God. So parts of the Psalm 55 passage that we read, David will say, I call to God, and he hears my prayer. So I'm able to say, you know, Sarah, David gets your pain, but he's also doing something that you're not doing. David didn't go and make himself bleed so he'd pass out. David called to the living God and asked for help. David admitted, I want to get out of here, but instead of responding to that temptation, he responded in faith to Jesus Christ. Now, do you hear? That's almost exactly what I said to Sarah. Do you hear what that is? That's a rebuke, isn't it? 
It doesn't sound like a rebuke. It sounds like I'm talking with her about the Bible and what David did, but it's, it's an illumination that what you're doing isn't good. Listen, the, for people that are really broken, the best kind of rebuke is one that doesn't sound like a rebuke. I was just talking here. Uh, I've just started wearing glasses in the last couple of weeks, and I'm super annoyed about it. Uh, I've always sort of needed them, but eye doctors always said, hey, if you don't need the correction, then don't worry about it. But I was finishing my dissertation in uh, 2009, and I was just having trouble reading. And so I got some, and this eye is really bad, and this eye is not so bad. So I can't just go to Walgreens and get some readers because it just magnifies the problem. So I went and I got glasses to read, and if I was going to be reading all day, I would uh, have the glasses on. I'd just take them off when I went to do other things. But within the last couple of months, my vision has gotten just not good, and I couldn't read for any amount of time without having headaches, and I was having trouble moving around and seeing things that were even pretty close. So I went to the eye doctor, and he's like, yep, you've just crossed the line, and it's time. I tried contact lenses, and it, they didn't work for me. And so I put these glasses on, and I can see is the good news. But now I'm having to horse around with these things, and they bug me, and there's, there's actually all since I've been talking, there's something like right here, and I just like <laughs> see it. And I can't fool with it because that'll be distracting, so I just bring it up. And I get hot, and it's sweaty, and they get smudges on them. And it just drives me up a wall. And I was uh, with some biblical counselors in New York um, a couple weeks ago. And I was just sitting there like, oh, these glasses, and uh, it drives me up a wall. And this, uh, uh, this pastor's wife that I was having uh, dinner with, there's about eight of us uh, together for a dinner. And this uh, pastor's wife who wore glasses, she said, oh, do you know... I used to be that same way too when I first got glasses and they just got on my nerves. And I just realized, do you know what? I'm complaining instead of being thankful for God's good gift of glasses. And so I just decided I was just going to be thankful instead of complaining. And I'm sitting there, I'm going, I think I just got rebuked. (laughs) And I did, you know. She was helping me understand you're not being content for God's good gift. You need to quit complaining. And by the way, we're all sick of hearing about it, you know. And I did, I did. I asked the Lord to forgive me for that. Gosh, I am. I'm overlooking a good gift and complaining about these things that are hanging off my face. And if we can be the kinds of people who really listen to people and who really learn how to share our own weaknesses and who learn how to share the truths of God's word and then teach what God has been teaching us and what God teaches us in his word, we'll be the kind of people who earn credibility who've demonstrated sensitivity and so have earned the hearing to give a rebuke. And many, many times people won't even feel like we've rebuked them because they'll just feel like we're those people who love them and we've come alongside them and we've showed them what God's word says. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word which gives us wise instruction about sin and suffering. And I pray that you would help us to not be unbiblical and avoid rebukes of sin. But Father, also protect us from being unbiblical and avoid compassionate encouragement in suffering. Father, make us like Jesus. And if I've given advice that's not Christ-like, would you help us to forget it? And if I have, would you convict us of it and make us more faithful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.